Baggage, a short horror story, by Stephen Shorter. I don't think anyone wants to be a bad guy. It's just that every now and then, life throws you a curveball and you have to make a snap decision. Sometimes it's the wrong one. Sometimes the choices you make hurt the people you love. Sometimes, one way or another, you pay for those decisions. So, that being said, I'm sure you can pierce together why this time last year I found myself standing with an armful of my possessions blinking outside my girlfriend's house on a bleak banger morning. I mean, the thing about living anywhere in North Wales is that, summer or winter, morning is nearly always bleak. This one was said to be particularly grim. Heavy, roiling storm clouds had begun to bleed down the slopes of Snowdon like photonegative magma. When Gwyn slammed the door in my face, she'd trapped the sleeve of my favorite shirt, and I'd been too proud to knock again and retrieve it. The high street was beginning to stir as I stumbled through. Shutters flickered open like sleep-heavy eyes, and parka-clad men dimly attempted to fit together market stalls like toddlers solving one of those shape puzzles. Everything seemed to move in slow motion, and the events of the previous night seemed burned into my vision like a television left paused for far too long. Such was my guilty days that at one point I nearly collided with a tiny twenty-something in an even tinier princess costume, doing the walk of shame with a pair of outrageous heels tucked under her arm. I was struck with a wave of paranoia that even she must know who I was and what I'd done to be so shamefacedly creeping away to catch a train back to Liverpool. She stared at me with sullen eyes ringed by smudged mascara as we passed beneath the shadow of the clock tower. It started to rain as I neared the turning, so I ducked into the doorway of a Salvation Army shop and watched with a measure of despondence as fat raindrops began to splatter against the gray street. Too late, I realized that I had dropped one of my socks nearby, and by the time I braved the rain to snatch it up, it was soaked through. It certainly looked as though I were getting the day I deserved. I felt a little like crying, but the lump in my throat simply hung there and the tears would not come. I returned my doorway, leaned my head against the pebble dash, and tried to pull myself together, the damp sock clasped tight in my hand. Tap, tap, tap. I opened my eyes again and glanced down at the ground beside my little shelter. There, at my feet, there sat a large brown suitcase spilling its contents into an ever-growing puddle. One of those bundles that people leave outside charity stores when they're having a clear-out, I guess. The raindrops were picking off the leather exterior, which, though faded, seemed well-preserved. I scooped it up and, shaking out the last of its contents, a handful of decaying school uniforms and a small doll with an unnervingly mournful expression on its ceramic face, turned it over in my hands. The case was made in an indistinctly old fashion, with buckles and straps to hold it closed and a ghastly beige lining that smelled faintly of tobacco. A card name tag was tied about the handle, but the penciled words that had once adorned it were faded almost beyond coherence. I squinted, but in the dim morning light, with the rain running down my face, I could only make out part of an address, somewhere in Tirgolwyn, if memory serves. Never one to look a gift horse in the mouth, within five minutes I had stuffed my damp possessions into the case, fastened it shut, and set off in the direction of the station with a new spring in my step. 
Now, I'll have to stop here for a moment. I'm sure you think I'm an asshole, that stealing donations from outside a charity shop that hadn't opened yet was a new low. And you're probably right. I was a horrible person back then. Maybe I still am. I don't know. What I do know is that what happened next was probably the most horrific experience of my life. And if stealing an old suitcase from the Salvation Army spared some old biddy or local mum what had happened to me, well, I'd like to say I'd do it over again. But when I do, the words feel hollow. I feel the dim ghost of that clammy flesh against mine, and the reek of sweet perfume invades my nostrils, and I... Anyway. I reached the station in what seemed like seconds and ducked into a small covered area. The rain was falling so heavily by this point that Banger had faded into the wet gray ether, and the old factory buildings across the tracks poured sheets of water from their rusting, slanted roofs. They seemed poised to be swept away in some great cleansing flood. Beyond them, the impossibly sharp Welsh hills rose into a roaring nothingness. The ticket office was closed and the platform deserted, with the ticket machines still hummed to themselves in the corner. Two handfuls of wet shrapnel went in and the ticket was spat out into the tray. I was in luck, the first train of the day was only minutes away. I turned and reached for the case, and as I picked it up, something made me pause. I do not feel that I can properly articulate the sense of menace I got as I touched the leather carry handle. I felt suddenly cold, as though I stood in somebody's shadow and I felt my hands begin to tremble. I whipped around, but I was alone. Rain quietly spluttered against the pavement outside. When I picked up the case again, a small ball of dread had settled in my stomach. Not deathly fear, but rather a sense of unfamiliarity as though this was the first time I'd encountered this object. I stepped onto the desolate platform, found a bench, and set the case before me on the concrete. With an uncertain hand, I reached down and popped open both buckles. The faint twang of tobacco found my nostrils as I pushed it open. I immediately recoiled. Protruding between a pair of jeans and a bundle of socks, there was a long, brown tangle of human hair. Aghast, I dropped the case and kicked it away. Then, after a moment, I pulled it back towards me, took a deep breath, and extracted the thing from inside. It was a woman's wig, a long brunette mane, knotted and faded by the cruel fingers of time. Inside, a small label read, Petersboro, 1834. 1834. Assuming this was the year of manufacture that made the wig very old indeed. How long had it sat in that suitcase? By this point, I assumed I had simply missed it when I'd cleared out the rest of the contents. For a moment, I even considered putting it on for a laugh. My heart was still pounding, and the absurdity of the idea made me smile for the first time that day. But it seemed somehow in poor taste, and I feared the response should I have to share my journey with one of the judgmental locals now drifting into the station in ones and twos to meet the first train of the day. I left the wig on the bench when I boarded. By the time I glanced out of the window, the platform had faded to an indistinct blur beyond the sheets of rain that threw themselves against the carriage, which now bore me away from that strange old town and towards the distant neon cradle of home. As the train jerked and trembled its way free of the cloying mire of Gwynedd County, an elderly steward limped down the aisle, wheeling a small refreshment cart festooned with crisps, chocolate bars, and soft drinks. 
My stomach burbled audibly. Bat's ears, he crowed. Nobody in particular. Newt size. I grinned, waved him down, and pointed out a packet of salted peanuts. Sixty pence, please, Susan, he murmured, unhooking the item. I reached into my pocket and groaned. I'd stuffed my wallet into the case when I'd picked up the wig. I excused myself and shuffled between the seats to the little closed-off luggage compartment at the end. Somebody had placed a heavy duffel bag on top of my case, which had wedged it tight against the bottom of the rack, so I simply unbuckled it, cracked it open a few inches, and forced my hand inside. Soft, damp fabric parted as I reached in further and further. Too slowly, it began to dawn on me that I was past my elbow in the case. Surely not? I thought, even as my fingers blindly pushed their way through another layer of wet clothing. I began to feel dizzy when I had to physically lean forwards to continue my blind exploration. Further and further, and then, as though I'd touched a boiling point, I felt pain. Sharp, searing pain. I yanked myself free from the leather mouth and stumbled back. I was bleeding from a rough tear on the back of my hand. I hurried to the toilet, clutching at my injury, and ran it under the tap. All notions of the unnatural dimensions of the case were gone from my mind. When I was 13, I'd fallen off my bike trying to impress a girl whose name I have since forgotten. I hit that gravel path behind my school and took a layer of skin off my knees, and this cut looked much the same. A vicious scrape. I racked my memory trying to think of what I'd packed that could have caused such harm. But nothing came to mind. In the end, I wrapped my hand in toilet paper and returned to my seat. My mind burned. I tried to rationalize the impossible dimensions of that case, feeling stomach-turning revulsion at the thought of doing anything but leaving it on the train when I reached home. But I had seen the bare interior when I'd packed my things into it outside the shop. Clear as day. You could measure the inside in inches. I decided that I must have misremembered it. And the cause of the cut? For a second, I felt the ghost of a half-remembered sensation. Brittle fingernails digging into my skin before I automatically dismissed it. I had caught myself on some zip or piece of protruding wire from the skeleton of the case, surely. Stupid conclusion in hindsight, but you must think of your own lives and the things that you have seen. How often have you dismissed some unknown creak or strange shadow on your wall as the throes of your vivid imagination? Spurred, perhaps, by the strange shit you read in books or odd corners of the internet. My hand throbbed, and I felt vaguely ill. I leaned back in my seat and peered out into the murky world beyond my window. When we reached Lime Street Station, I retrieved the case and alighted. My parents were not there to meet me this time, and so I waved down a taxi outside and sped off in the direction of Boodle. The fare meter ticked steadily upwards as the docklands flickered by. The last remnants of Liverpool's old industrial buildings were rotting away, falling off their wooden bones behind billboards and advertising banners taller than any Victorian worker must have thought possible. Enormous glass towers rose from the rubble as though the bricks and foundation of that hard past were fertilizing the earth underfoot. A taxi driver, a thin-faced man of Afghan or perhaps Persian origins, glanced at me in the mirror. "'That you?' he asked. "'I'm sorry?' The smell? That you? I opened my mouth to assure him that whatever scent he'd picked up on was the usual smell emanated by the mercy's near opaque waters. Then it hit me, too. A cloying stink. Something awful and rancid like spoiled ham. 
sour taste clung to the back of my throat. No, it's not me. My fucking cab didn't smell like this before you got in, Fa. I pulled the end of one sleeve over my hand and covered my nose and mouth with it. The driver was becoming increasingly irate. The fuck is that? he asked. I don't... I don't know, I told him. But I did know. I pivoted to look back at the rear of the vehicle. I'd placed the case in the boot of the taxi before departing. The stench seemed to ooze from behind my seat, from that rear compartment. It had gotten stronger, too. My brain flared with primordial imaginings of sheltering in a cave and of some awful dead thing looming from the storm in the entryway. My stomach turned, and I gagged. The driver swerved so suddenly I felt the seatbelt tauten against my collar and chest, winding me. Out, he said. I pulled the door handle and sucked in fresh air, but did not depart. We were in an unfamiliar part of town, somewhere in the suburbs, and the thought of wandering the quiet sprawl with or without that reeking suitcase unnerved me a great deal. I had no map, and Gwen still had my phone after finding the pictures on there that had led to our fight. Please, I said. It can't be far now. Just give me the money and get out, Fa. I... I don't have my wallet. What? I was... My dad is going to pay you. When we get to my house. Please. I had a sudden, irrational fear of being alone with that strange object. Before the driver could answer me, I went on, He'll pay you double. For your troubles. I swallowed hard and tried to look as earnest as a pale, sickly twenty-something with a bandaged hand could. In hindsight, I probably looked more like a junkie than anything else, but the promise of money had its desired effect, for the driver snarled something unpleasant-sounding in his native tongue and slammed the door. As we began to move again, he wound all of the windows down. The cab was filled with the smell of damp lawns after rainfall, and the stench receded. By the time we reached my home, in fact, there was no trace of it beyond a sour twang that clung to the leather upholstery. The meter clicked up to 22.50 as we pulled into the driveway. 50, the driver said. I decided against taking issue with his shoddy rounding abilities and instead dizzily retrieved my case. It seemed heavier now. I grunted as I lifted it free. My father wasn't home, but I found the necessary cash about the house and paid the man. He squinted at me and then at the faded leather case, standing by the door as he stuck the money into his breast pocket. I don't know what shit you're in, he said. If I ever see you again, you're fucking dead. I didn't bother arguing. He sped off in his vehicle and I was left alone with my baggage. I set the suitcase down on my bed and stared at it for a time. Of the ghostly miasma, there was no trace. I inspected the case for damp patches for leaking fluid, but there was nothing. The case, its dry leather slightly faded, was as it always had been. Tentatively, I reached down to unfasten it, popping one buckle and then the other. There was no reaction. On my way into the house, I had grabbed a pair of rubber gloves from the kitchen sink, and I donned these before throwing the case open to find nothing. My clothes, in disarray thanks to my blind fumbling, were all that greeted me. No obvious source for the horrible smell. I upended the case and then set it aside. Empty. I began to feel very stupid. It would be easy for a 
disreputable taxi driver to try something like that, to create a situation to squeeze a little extra cash out of his customers. Of course there was nothing wrong with my case. It had been something that the driver must have done to countless others. I decided I'd Google a stench incident as I absentmindedly began to sort through my clothes. When I found the comb, wrapped in a pair of my boxers, my feeling of vindication quickly faded. It was a small, dainty implement of an odd, asymmetrical design. Its handle, ivory, I think, was beautifully shaped into the likeness of a curvaceous mermaid, her long tail glittering with little pinpricks of gold and silver. However, there was something incredibly unsettling about the way that her slender neck supported no head, but instead tapered in the harsh, jagged spines of the comb itself. I thought perhaps the mermaid's head may have been worn away, but the joint was so perfect and the flowing, seaweed hair pattern on the spine of the comb so detailed that it had to have been deliberate. The wooden teeth of the comb had been warped by the years so that they resembled tendrils, corkscrewing from the dainty woman's throat. Several had broken off completely, and those that remained were matted with brittle, brown hair and what looked like dried blood. Somebody had violently and repeatedly scoured their scalp with this, it seemed. I set the comb down beside my clothing. I felt suddenly cold and my injured hand began to throb again. First the wig, and now this. Some dark corner of my mind began to murmur terrible nothings to me. Were these strange manifestations actually happening? Had something come unhinged inside my head? Was I hallucinating? Was I dreaming? If the sinister mermaid knew anything, it did not divulge. On a whim, I reached out and snapped the case shut. All things considered, what was and what was yet to come, I should probably have burned it. Instead, it sat in my closet for a full month as I tried to piece my life together again. My parents were none too pleased to see me, but they gave me my space and regarded my presence in their home with what one might describe as an air of distant tolerance. My injured hand healed slowly and my dreams during this period were often unsettling misrememberings of real events from my past. One such nightmare would begin the day I asked Gwen out. There was the trip to the condemned climate research building in Snowdonia, all thanks to some bullshit story she'd read online and the crawling around in the dust with borrowed torches. It was all as I remember until we reached the upstairs office space. There, as I ducked under a rotting desk in search of the fabled otherworldly Ethernet port, I'd feel cold, fetid breath on my back. My shirt had come free of my belt. I'd spin around, strike my head on the underside of the table, and find myself gazing up into a face that was not my soon-to-be girlfriend's. From there, my waking memory of the dream is always fractured. I recall a stooped figure of terrible height, the frills of some long, antiquated dress, and sometimes... a face. The face is wrong, though. As though a graphic designer had attempted to fit the flesh of a human head over something bulbous and slick. Its blurred countenance always seemed to be lopsided and poorly fitted. It would loom suddenly towards me, and I would feel that cold breath, and I would wake, screaming. You might argue that I deserve that, that even the pleasant memories I have of that relationship should be stripped from me because of how I treated her. Perhaps you're right. I was a cowardly, manipulative liar, and she deserves far better. 
The point is that all this, a sequence of events, ruined not only my life, but the lives of those around me. So I'm not writing this for your pleasure, nor to relieve my own guilt. It's for them, and the people that I dragged down with me. When you send me that first email, I held off writing this response for a long time. Largely because so much of the story is tied into the fact that I was a shitty person back then. But yesterday afternoon, I realized that someone else might now be suffering through what I did. And so I swallowed my pride and sat down at my laptop and began this account to you. It's nearly 2 a.m. now and my hands are shaking, but there is one last chapter. It was shortly after the nightmares began that my dad disappeared. He was rewiring the house's faulty lighting that weekend and he needed access to the circuit breakers in my closet. So I found myself shifting all my junk up to the attic. The only unusual event that I can recall that day is my father commenting on a sweet perfume smell that suddenly hung in the air beside the closet door. You've not got some girl locked up in there, have you? He asked me, a wry smile on his face. Not funny, I replied. The case seemed to weigh nothing at all, as I carried it and an armful of other boxes and bags up the ladder. I tucked them into the corner with the case at the bottom of the heap and then returned to the internet while my dad went about his work. A couple hours later, he asked me to run a shopping list, screws and cable ties to our local hardware store, which I did. When I got home, the front door stood wide open. The sweet, lavender smell clung thickly to the carpets and furniture inside. I felt a horrible weight settle in the bottom of my stomach and I called out to my father. Silence. My hand began to throb. Dad? I called. Nothing. I crept up the stairs. There was no sign of a struggle, nothing broken or scattered, just the cloying, womanly odor in a house so quiet it seemed to hold its breath. Dad's toolbox stood on the floor of my room, neatly packed. The master switch had tripped, so all the lights in the house were off. Evening sunlight crept through red curtains and everything took a pinkish hue and the smell of perfume eddied about me with my every movement. Then, a floorboard creaked from somewhere overhead. I froze, but no further movement was forthcoming. I crept out onto the landing. My fingertips tingled in time with my pounding heart as one rung at a time I ascended the ladder into the attic. Here, at least, there was no menacing red glow, for there were no windows. Instead, the only light came from a narrow pool surrounding the hatch through which I entered. Everything beyond its boundary was an indistinct shape in the darkness, and there... Inches from the top of the ladder lay the case. It was nowhere near the corner into which I had stuffed it just hours earlier, and I think that a small part of my mind was even then shrieking at me to turn and flee, but I was wholly focused on a small flap of fabric protruding from the case. With trembling hands, I eased the lid open, and there, neatly folded, were my father's gray overalls, still crusted with white paint. Curiously... They appeared damp, as though they had been left out in the rain, and I reached down impulsively to feel the material. Then a hand grabbed me, 
As ridiculous as this sounds and as shaky as my memory gets from this point onwards, I can still picture vividly the sight of that porcelain white wrist and those long fingers wrinkled as though their owner had been submerged in a bath for far too long. A clammy, wet vice closed about my forearm and its long, green-tinged fingernails dug so hard they drew blood. I screamed and tried to rise, but in a flurry of movement I saw another hand rise from the case and felt the intense tightness as it seized a knot of my long, curly hair. Again, I cried out, but my injured hand suddenly throbbed so intensely I thought it must be immersed in boiling water and the smell of perfume was overpowering. You could almost see it in the air. My vision blurred, and I felt myself being pulled downwards, down into the yawning maw of the case. My stomach lurched as I passed the point at which any sane individual might imagine the bottom of it to lie. Clothes pressed in on me from all sides. I distinctly remember that I saw t-shirts with cartoon characters twisted together with ancient whalebone corsets, and teddy bears with missing eyes and dolls with missing heads, all of them reluctantly parting from me as though I were attempting to navigate a crowd. I never felt like I was falling. It was more akin to sinking in thick mud. My feet feebly pedaled at the air and the sensation must have snapped me out of my daze because only then did I start to panic. The hand which had been yanking at my hair had gone, but the other pulled me further down, inch by inch. The clothes and belongings that surrounded me felt suddenly sodden, and I smelt decay. The same smell that had hit me in the taxi wafted up to me now. Something moved below, and I felt the mass of objects against my face beginning to shift as something terrible and large rose to meet my descent. By this point, I was wrenching free of the pallid hand which held me. On all sides, the damp fabric walls had begun to move. I tried to scream again and twisted about. I hooked my knees, which were not yet immersed within the case, over the edge and began to haul myself upwards, clawing for something to cling to with my hands. Then I felt leather under my fingers and the backs of my legs burning. I hauled myself from the nightmare. My whole body ached. My arm was bleeding. That same voice which had urged me to flee now directed my movements as I rose and grabbed the case. Even as I slammed it closed, I noticed the strange garments and toys inside falling away into an abyss. There was no bottom to this case. Only a deep hole, whose walls were papered with the same faded design as the inside of the lid. The hole seemed to swallow light. I somehow knew that there was no bottom to it that this voracious thing would never end. The perfume around me was giving way to that distinct putrescence. The horrid smell roiled up from the darkness. I buckled the awful thing shut and hauled it downstairs. It seemed almost impossibly heavy now. I had to drag it along the garden path. There, I doused it with lighter fuel and set fire to it. I fed the flames with logs and fallen branches until their orange tongues licked at curled scraps of leather and white-hot metal buckles and the sun vanished over the horizon. They think I killed my dad, you know. Aside from that one forum thread, the one which put us in touch, I tend to avoid giving my side of the story. I stay on the move now, hitch across Europe and farther afield. I live out of a suitcase. The irony isn't lost on me, don't worry. I see my face on the television and on the rare occasion that I dare to connect the internet when they plead with me to come home. 
I don't sleep much. My hand hurts when it's cold. I work laborers' jobs and live in hostels when I can avoid sleeping rough. I miss my mom, especially my dad. Every day I hate myself a little more, but I keep moving, keep breaking rocks for pennies. Sometimes I wish the ground would open up and swallow me whole. One day, perhaps it might.